Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 69. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Chris Dillo. He's an economics writer at the Investors Chronicle. He writes a blog called Stumbling and Mumbling and is the author of the book, You Labour and the End of Politics. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on. Chris, um, you're a writer for the Investors Chronicle. Can you tell us a bit about your journey to that position? Uh, yeah, it's quite a, quite a long one. Um, I did a few years as an in, in investment banking, where I was mostly a UK economist. Um, but then I just got bored with it and went into journalism. And I've been at the Investors Chronicle more or less ever since. Who who was the banking uh, experience with, if you can say, Chris? Um, it was Namira for a few years. Right. And before that, I was with an old stockbroker called Savory Milne, who got taken over by Swiss Bank Corporation. I, I right. think are now part of UBS. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's been an infinite number of takeovers. And when when you were at Namora, what, what when was that? Was that a late eighties, early nineties? Yeah, it was both. Yes, yeah. late eighties to mid nineties. The re- the reason I ask is because I started work working for a an unnamed Japanese bank, but not not one of the caliber of Namora. And uh, although I didn't realize it at the time, that the, the, what 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 strikes me is that that now has huge significance because the Jap- what seems to be a, a, a been the case is that. What happened to Japan after their market peaked in '89, and then they entered a two-decade deflationary depression, for want of a better phrase, now seems to be happening to the rest of the world. I don't know if you'd, you'd agree with that uh, sort of broad synopsis. Yeah, there's there's something in that. In the, 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 the Japanese were the first into secular stagnation, mm. and the rest of us have joined them 20 years later. Which is not perhaps the cheeriest, <laughs> cheeriest of situations to be in. Yes, I mean, I think I think the causes are very different. I mean, the Japanese problem was a deflating stock market plus banking losses that were never properly addressed by policy methods. Mm. And it might be the case that Western secular stagnation has rather deeper roots. Fairly similar roots, though, would you say? Only in some respects. Mm. I mean, the, after the 2008 banking crisis, um, the UK and US governments were rather better at resolving banks, restoring banks' profitability and capital ratios than the Japanese were. You know, so so I'm not sure we've got that problem anymore. We've got lots of other underlying problems about, especially in the UK, but also in the US. Uh, a lack of productivity growth. And what's really weird is that um, all the likely causes uh, of, of that productivity slowdown might not necessarily be terribly amenable to, to policy. So, so what are the, how, how do you see the, both the political and the economic landscape going forward? And, and what do you think the risks are to, to your central cases? And for me, the, political situation we're in at the moment is very much a product of economic stagnation. Um, I think one of the key books in this context was written in 2006 by Ben Friedman at Harvard. And he showed that 
throughout history and around the world, there was a tendency for economic stagnations and slowdowns to lead to intolerance, to a desire to close one's economy to the world uh, and to anti-democratic impulses, the desire for, for a strongman. And I'd interpret uh, the demand for Brexit in that, in that context. It's a product of a dysfunctional economy. Absolutely. I mean, you could say that what I've observed is that as you have economic prosperity, there seems to be this, this broad attitude of everybody coming together. Um, but when the economy starts to flounder, you just get this situation where people just become very insular and, and they and very protective. Yeah, and the classical example of that was in the 1930s when the Great Depression led to demand for tariffs uh, in the US and to, to much, much worse in, in Germany. But we can turn this around. I mean, remember the long boom of the 50s and 60s. But by the end of the 1960s, we had uh, we had hippies, we had student radicals, we had uh, a demand which was not fulfilled for, for, for left-wing transformation. And now, now we have stagnation. We, we have a demand for the opposite. So... With regard to the economy and indeed, say, the stock market and sterling, et cetera, what, what, how do you think things are going to pan out over the course of the next sort of 12 months? Oddly enough, for the stock market, um, I'm moderately optimistic. And the reason for that is simply that um, we have a few lead indicators which are quite positive. One of these is the dividend yield. And dividend yield on the all share index is well above its 30-year average. And that it has in the past been a fantastic predictor of, of returns, especially over longer periods. I mean, it's not much of a predictor for one month or three month returns. But if you look at 12 month or three year, five year returns, it gets better and better as a predictor. And another thing I look at is foreign buying of US equities, um, which is data collected by the US Treasury every month. And in the past, especially since the mid-90s, big buying of US equities by non-Americans has tended to lead to market falls, uh, as happened in 2000, 2008. And big selling has tended to lead to market rises. And recently, we, we, we've, we've seen quite heavy selling. And then this suggests to me that sentiment towards equities is quite depressed. And sentiment tends to mean revert with the result that equities rise after sentiment has been low, which is a fancy way of saying that um, a lot of bad news is already in the price. What I thought was quite interesting was, I'm sure you'll have seen, that I think it's the Norwegian um, sovereign wealth fund has announced, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to allocate something like 100 billion, if that's, if that's correct, to US equities um, in the future. And at the, exactly the same time, the the EU has proposed setting up 100 billion. Um, this is more of a trial balloon than a, than a stated, an absolute policy, uh, but is, is advocating setting up 100 billion uh, wealth fund to invest in Eurozone companies. Um, and I know which one of those I'd rather trust with my money, and it's not the EU. <laughs> yeah, you, you might be right. I mean, for months and months, years even, 
people have been complaining about high valuations on US equities. And for months and months and years and years, the market has risen despite that. And I suspect the key here is simply the health of the US economy. And one good indicator is the misery index, the sum of inflation and unemployment. And this is now currently very, very low. And if it stays low, that's the case for US valuations staying high. The, the one, one thing also that seems to be happening, because um, I, I absolutely agree that for a lot of sort of object, semi-objective observers like myself, the US has seemed very overvalued. But there is a plausible thesis that you've got a kind of winner takes most or winner takes all effect happening, particularly in technology, whereby earnings aren't necessarily going to mean revert because for the likes of uh, I mean, I, I don't like Facebook as a company, but something like Google, which I do think has genuine social value, something like Google can just get more and more and more powerful. And its earnings aren't necessarily going to mean revert back to some kind of historic average. And it's a, these are kind of like almost brand new types of businesses. They're sort of things, global entities that in a pre-internet world could never have existed. But because of economies of scale and network effects and you know, all the rest, these companies can get like super dominant. And the frankly, the only way of getting their earnings to even a to mean revert would basically be to break them apart. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. What we're seeing in the US, but not elsewhere, is an increase in monopoly power, um, thanks to the fact that the internet has created um, monopolies like Google and Facebook. And you're right, the most obvious way for that monopoly power to go into reverse is through them being break- broken up. But I wouldn't be 100% confident that that political backlash against American monopoly won't happen. I, I, I think you can easily argue that the main threats to the US economy do come at the political level. And this is the same, same is true in the, in the UK. You know, politics is endogenous. I mean, that's been your view, hasn't it, Paul, for a while, that there's, there's a, a non-trivial risk that basically the FANG-type stocks will get beaten about by US regulatory forces. Yes, indeed. I mean, it seems that we're at the point where you've got private companies that seem to have more data, more power than the governments have got. And aside from their monopolistic tendencies, that I don't think would sit well with the authorities. So how can Google know more about you than the government? They do, unless they hand over their data free will to the government, which you know maybe they do. It seems wrong that the that that you have that balance of power. That effectively, you know, the, the governments are playing catch up to these major companies. So, I just think at some point, um, m- regulations definitely on the cards, some kind, but the all-out potential to, for them to be broken up or to to move into government hands is has got to be there but it may not be the whole of the company as you're saying tim it could be part of their their business so you know there's lots of different parts there's so many different parts to google that we probably don't even know about you know they've got um they're obviously developing things in the background that we we may never know or might not know for a good few years but say their autonomous vehicles part of it the government might not be necessarily interested in in that but their data collection and and their their sort of archive of of information i think they very much would be interested in um so that just seems to be like a natural progression um 
given given their dominance given their absolute dominance and whether it sits well or not with the US authorities you can see how globally it it won't necessarily so in other words european citizens may not may not accept or european governments may not necessarily accept what us companies are trying to do and therefore they'll be regulated either inside the us or outside the us at at some point um but and and there's been a, a personal backlash not personal by me but personal by everybody about what's happened to facebook and it's become slightly tainted by you know the recent scandals etc um and and so i think the whole the whole nature of of social media has has been questioned more now than it ever has been before so um what you've got to get on your side i think if the government's going to do something about it is you've got to get the will of the people behind it and and, th- and that seems to be you know where the way the wind's blowing at the moment chris you mentioned that the dividend yield on on FTSE stocks how how do you feel about the let's say the underlying health of of bond markets internationally i i, I raised a question do you follow a russell napier by the way do you read any of his stuff I don't. Perhaps I should. He has a, a site called Eric, uh, which is the Electronic Research Exchange in, Interchange, I think, and it's like a clearinghouse for research in the city. But his, although I think most of the stuff on there you probably have to pay for, his own commentary, which is called the Solid Ground, is available for free. Though I think you need to be an FCA registered business to be able to register for it. So sadly, not available to everybody. But if you just search for Russell Napier and Eric online, you, you'll find it, and it's free to free to to sign up. There's a, a point, I mean, I, I can send it to you after the, the, the podcast, but there's a, some research, he's, his commentary over the last three, four months, I, I, three, four weeks. I don't know if, Paul, you've read it, but basically it's the most terrifying stuff I've read to, to just summarize. And I read a lot of terrifying stuff like, through choice. So like you say, that's, that's, that's It's a bit like Tarantino saying, I've, I've exactly, seen quite like, a violent my film. God, that, exactly. That, that, that last film I saw was, was, quite, was quite violent, wasn't it, says Quentin? Um, <laughs> And um, and basically, what 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 Russell's point is that it, it's it's like in answering the question why are so many government bond markets now trading on a negative yield, particularly in the context of the eurozone, he answers that by saying, well, effectively, this is what happens when you have a, a slow motion bank run. The institutions across the eurozone are so un, unhappy about having money in the bank with a negative yield, which also makes them fully exposed to the counterparty and credit risk of that bank, that they would write it for them. It actually makes sense to park their money in, say, German government bonds yielding negative 50 or 100 basis points, A, because they can actually make money if that trend goes even more bizarrely negative. But also, they would rather have exposure to, say, German government risk than they would do to, say, Deutsche Bank risk. So effectively, what his his argument is, we are already experiencing a bank a bank run in the eurozone, and it's a it's a, like a flight to physical cash as opposed mm. to deposit cash. But the implications are really really scary, particularly for the for the financial sector in the eurozone. Yeah, the, 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 there could be something in that, and it could be that if the ECB cuts rates even more negative, that that problem w- will get worse. I think I think a lot depends on the ECB's response here. Um, and whether the ECB will actually do anything to support banking profitability or, or, or to, to, to hit it further. Because I, re- I remember, this is going back several years now, I think it was Denmark, uh, but it was one of the Scandinavian countries, and I think also Germany, and that the Wall Street Journal reported on 
Um, well, there was, I think it was a stall worker. So a lady had a stall in wherever it was in Germany. And her response to negative interest rates, as in sort of deposit rates, was basically, well, I'm going to save even more. Uh, this is there's clearly something gone wrong. I'm more concerned about my future, more concerned about my pension. So I, I, one presumes that, that in as much as central bankers have any kind of brain activity whatsoever, they're thinking, well, if we make rates more negative, people will go out and spend. I think that I presume that's the sort of the you know, sort of the lizard brain thinking that they're that they, they're operating to. Whereas in reality, in the real world, if you cut rates to below zero, people will actually just save more because they're terrified about the future. So it's completely counterproductive. And it's also destroying the banking system. Couldn't it be that they just don't know what else to do? So they well, just well, do more that, yeah. yeah, but in the... Oh, you mean, sorry, the central bankers? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, what else? Okay, to, like, what, they've got one lever and they just keep pulling it. Well, but, but that's the argument that, you know, for, for a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> yeah. But it's the only thing you've got to do is, is basically take, take Carney. So... You know, the answer is, I'm going to cut rates. What was the question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think in fairness to central bankers here, that, that I'm they, not, that's not actually allowed on this call, um, Chris. <laughs> we are not allowed to be fair to central bankers, but, but do go on. Okay, I'll, I'll rephrase that. <laughs> Thank you. problem that everybody has is that we're all victims of our formative years. Yeah. And the central bankers are about our age. Their formative years were spent in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. That was the time when we were worried about excessive government debt, about inflation, about high nominal and real interest rates. And from that mindset, you know, cutting rates um, and worrying about um, government debt and excessively loose fiscal policy um, is the natural thing to do. But we live, as you say, in the opposite world right now. It's, it's very likely that cuts in interest rates will simply cause people to save more. And we don't have to worry about um, government debt. The natural thing for policymakers to do is, is to relax fiscal policy. Um, but this doesn't, doesn't seem to be on, on the cards. You know? Now, there is, however, one possible solution here. Eric Lonergan at M&G has suggested that the ECB use use dual interest rates such that it raises the deposit rate to, to, to say zero or may, may, maybe more, so that the ECB isn't charging banks for deposits. But it also lends to banks at a, at a negative rate, um, which, which banks can lend on, you know, with the result that um, the ECB deliberately helps improve banks' profit margins. And Eric thinks that if you can get those margins wide enough, then, then this will encourage banks uh, to, to lend to some sort uh, of productive economic activity. If you're Very being, if you, if you're, you're sort of being paid to borrow, though, surely you just want to borrow as much as you can. I mean, if, if I'd like to borrow a trillion dollars and just get paid for it. Well, well, this, 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 this is the position that the that, that governments are in, and they, they seem most reluctant to do that. Um, but but in, in the private sector and, and, and banking, uh, one would think that the incentives would work rather better. I mean, so a really unfair question, Chris. If if you were Jay Powell at the Fed or, or Mark Carney at the, the Bank of England or you know the Mario Draghi at the ECB, and you, you were tasked with, with managing either one or all of those central banks, what would you do 
in as much as there is a fix to this predicament that we're in. I'm not really happy on the idea of central bankers being the solution. Yeah. To, I, I think in Europe, the solution is loose fiscal policy. In the US, it is to stop being an idiot about, about trade wars. And in yeah. the UK, it, it, it is to get Brexit sorted. None of those are things that, that, that central bankers can do. And central bankers are, are being asked to, to do jobs that, um, that, that they, they can't do. And yeah. they're asked to solve other, other people's problems. And they're being asked to do so when they don't have the tools to do so. That doesn't answer your question, does it? Well, no, but I think it may be an impossible. As I said, I think it may be an impossible question anyway. In other words, it's like you know that, that, that old, increasingly unfunny joke about you know the guy asking for directions in Ireland, and the guy says, "Well, I wouldn't start from here." None of us would willingly start from here. But it's but it, nonetheless, it's a very interesting question because what what do we do? I think what we're all trying to say here is that we kind of acknowledge that the the system is in a is in a mess of epic proportions. If it was caused by central bankers growing up at a time where they had inflation and inflation was the worry, but now we're st- staring down the barrel of deflation and nobody really knows what to do. Um, is the problem the central bankers themselves? Is it the politicians influencing the central bankers, uh, either you know, uh, overtly or, or subtly? Or, or, or how are we going to, how would we deal with these problems? And and indeed, what what is what are the kind of market outcomes that we're facing over the next, you know, five to ten years? And and it seems asking those questions is very important. Also, we know that their Pavlovian response is always going to be to cut interest rates, no matter what what the situation is. Where does that leave the markets? What what where where is that that's pushing an, an increasingly untenable position in bonds even further? We've started to see precious metals bubbling up, um, to say the least, is that going to turn into an almost reverse crash where they just accelerate higher and at an ever-increasing rate? And, and what would their response be if that was the case too? They they might respond in a different way. Yeah, I, th- I think the precious metal story is really quite straightforward in that um, they are the inverse of interest rates. And as it, uh, the further interest rates come down, the further... Um, Gold prices go up, and that is pretty much um, the, the whole the whole story. Sometimes things are simpler than they seem. And the significant thing about inverted yield curves in Europe is that they're signalling that negative interest rates are here not just for a few months, but but for several years. And what that's telling us is that the markets perceive the eurozone's economic problem as not being merely cyclical. The problem isn't just that we've got a short-term downturn. And that, that's a really worrying thing, that, that people expect economic stagnation to be with us for, for a long time. That's really interesting because you, you said at the top of the show that you, uh, certainly in the UK, you see the misery index as being very low. And it, to be fair, if you look at unemployment figures and interest rates, they look pretty good so why is it the market is is so fearful about the future i think one big problem here is is simply a lack of productivity growth and one reason why unemployment is so low is that even the most modest economic growth translates into employment growth if output per person is stagnating now but the problem is that if you want economic growth over the longer run there has to come a point at which 
productivity has to grow um, sim simply because you can't expand employment that quickly. You know, so, so it all comes back to this productivity stagnation. And what is really interesting here is why has productivity stagnated for so long? And, and we do have a hope that perhaps looser fiscal policy, faster aggregate demand will help boost fiscal policy or will help boost productivity. But that's not at all assured. It could be that the productivity stagnation has much deeper roots in a lack of um, innovative activity, in a lack of um, profitability, a lack of profit expectations, and diminished animal spirits as a result of um, the, the, the crash, um, and so on. So, so it could be that the, the productivity problem is, is here to stay. I mean, my, my start of a 10 on this would be that the reason productivity growth is so low is that everybody in offices is watching uh, videos of kittens all day. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not being, I mean, I know that sounds like a glib, facetious response, but I mean, go, going on the basis of my own, let's say, engagement with social media, and particularly Twitter, it's these, a lot of these new tools are time sinks. Oh, definitely. There's no doubt about that. So yeah, yeah. You, you, you only have to go into an open plan office and you just put yourself in the sort of notional uh, position of the boss. And then you can see everyone watching kitten videos until they, they hear the boss approaching and then they maybe pull up a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, but what, 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 what's chicken here and what's egg? I mean, could it be that they're looking at kitten videos simply because there's nothing, nothing else to do? Sim simply because, um, you know, th th there isn't much demand uh, yeah. out Go on. I think, I think we need to get into the kitten video business, Paul. I think you're right. I think, yeah, let's, let's, uh, anyone got any kittens out there? We have to, yeah, come over and start filming them. But it's, uh, you make an interesting point. I mean, the, I, I think the, the, what's driving a lot of the internet is, well, what's driving everything is views, isn't it? Everything's views for advertising. That's why you get so many, um, like fake adverts because they generate interest. That's why promotion of of arguments on on social media because that's that's when people really engage and and, and they've been engineered that way and which which is very interesting to make people engage. I think there's also the the hyper normalization of everything that you're doing on the internet. So if you're into say woodworking and you're watching a YouTube video, as soon as you finish one, another one will come up that's equally as interesting and you just can't get off that train. It's very, very difficult to do that. And so trying to reconnect with the ways that we grew up and the way we learned things, okay, it was hugely inefficient, but it wasn't so addictive as, 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 um, as, as, today's sort of methods and consumption of, of information it's it's almost like people seem to have more computing power than they've ever had before but less time with which to to meet and talk to real humans it's it's kind of a, a very strange strange weird and wonderful situation we're in yeah i i think we, we should contrast what what you've just said with what people were saying about the internet 20 years ago in, in its infancy. Back then, we were told that the internet would reduce search costs and, the, and therefore reduce competition or increase competition, reduce monopoly power. We were also told it would make us more efficient in all sorts of 
unspecified ways. And 20 years on, we see the exact opposite. The internet has facilitated monopoly, certainly in the US, and, and it's diminished productivity in, in many offices. That's so interesting. I, I think the lesson there is that of William Goldman about the uh, what's true of the screenwriting industry is true of everything else. Nobody knows anything. Absolutely. I mean, the, the euro was brought in because it was going to create employment and efficiency across Europe, you know, and because you wouldn't have had, you don't have to change your lira for Deutschmarks, etc. <laughs> look how look how that's panned out. I mean, we're, drift, we're drifting perhaps inexorably to the, the sort of political black hole of Brexit. How do you see the, whether it's in political or political and economic terms, how do you see the next few weeks panning out, Chris? Well, I refer you to William Goldman again. Nobody knows anything. Um, it's going to be tremendously difficult for, for Johnson to, 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 to back down. But um, the, the Labour Party are determined to put him in, in, into a hole. Um, where he he has to humiliate himself. Yeah. Could, could just for the benefit of the listeners who might not be familiar, because we do have a global audience um, here. So, just for the benefit of the listeners who who don't know the position that we're in at the moment, could you just give, give us a Tim? Could you just give us a breakdown on on what's been going on and and where we are and what the what the government's facing? Yeah, so I'd say, I mean, I, I I make no bones about about being a lever, being a staunch Brexiteer, but trying trying to be objective and putting emotion to one side. We had a vote in uh, June 2016 um, on whether to stay within the EU or whether to leave, and by a margin of some a million and a bit votes, um, 52 to 48 percent of the of the electorate, the people who voted, that is, uh, we voted to leave. And here we are three years, three and a bit years down the line, and Parliament has basically gone to what I would describe as ridiculous basil faulty-ish lengths to prevent that to prevent the UK from leaving the EU. And in response to that failure, Boris Johnson, who's a newly elected prime minister, has basically had a purge of Europhiles um, within the Conservative Party. Um, but there is now complete chaos in, in Parliament because he wants to stand for a general election. The, the opposition parties don't yet want to give him that general election, perhaps because they're scared that they're not going to not going to win it. Um, so we have this complete stasis, this complete vacuum uh, at the heart of government. And um, I, I can't speak for the sort of the remain fraternity, but as far as I think the leave side is concerned, people are boiling over with anger about this. Yeah, I think I think they are. I think this has long since ceased to be an issue about Europe. One reason for Lever's anger is simply the perception that the will of the people is, is not being fulfilled. And this would be true whatever the will of the people was about. Mm. You know, um, we we could have had a few years ago um, a cool headed discussion about our relationship with the EU about some sort of Norway-style compromise whereby we left the political aspects uh, of the EU but stayed in the, the single market. But, but, but that ship has long since sailed and we're, we're now um, polarised on both sides. So what could happen going forward then? What, uh, it, so from what I understand, Boris Johnson was going to call a general election, but that's been blocked because he doesn't have a, was it two-thirds majority to do that? So, so how how you've got a bet with with um, Zach at the moment, haven't you, Tim? How's that looking uh, we, for you? We, which which I'm thinking I'm almost certainly going to lose now. <laughs> right. Okay. We better not have Zach back on. 
No, no, no. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to act, act, as, act in the spirit of grand global al- al- altruism and just give joking. money to anybody that any give money to anybody that 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 that, that uh, wants wants to take me on on, on likelihood or not of, of actually achieving Brexit. He, it looks like he's he's going to be right about that. Yeah, because we we basically bet that on because I'm gonna, we're going to do a podcast. I I hope on the 31st of, uh, of October on Halloween. Um, and the bet was essentially that we'd, we'd be out effectively within a matter of hours. And that, that sadly looks like it's almost impossible now. Isn't it amazing how no matter what the landscape looks like, it just, it just keeps shifting. And I'm, I'm the reason why I'm taking one step behind, I'm, I'm trying not to look at the minutiae of this on a day-to-day basis is probably because I think it'd be bad for my blood pressure. And, and, and so I, I, I kind of, pick up bits of information where I can about what's going on. But each time I do, I feel like, oh, you know, I can't believe this is happening again. But it, it's it, when Boris Johnson uh, w- was mooted to be prime minister, a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, he's, he's this, he's that, he's not fit for purpose and all that sort of stuff. But when he got in, he did seem to roll his sleeves up and say, right, we're going to do this. And he started throwing his, his weight about. And it actually felt quite refreshing that he, mm. that at least he wanted to do something. I think in politics, people just want to know, they don't mind where you stand, but just at least let people know where you stand. And I think the current crop just seemed to shift with the, you know, the, the movements of the sun and the moon it's just incredible each day well, the, the, i mean the, the the fact that you've got a you've got a side saying stop the coup uh but also stop a general election i mean well, one thing you can say about fascist dictatorships is they tend not to support general elections yeah i mean that that's it's just incredible why why but i suppose the rules are rules and if you've got to have a certain majority before you can do that then then that's that's something to be respected as well but well you say you say rules are rules but i mean there comes a point at which the the behavior of politicians is so flagrantly anti-democratic in essence that Mm. the the, there comes a point at which the people say look enough yeah Uh, and that's the point at which people start marching well well let's let's what, what how could this be resolved then what what i can't because i'm not sure i we are stuck in a situation where we don't seem to be able to can we negotiate with Europe? Can we, uh, we can't, you know, call a general election to solve this problem. What, what's going what's going to happen? I can't, I can't see a way out. I'm not sure there is a way, to be honest. And even if we were to leave with, with, with no deal, um, which requires, um, some, some manipulation, um, we're going to have years and years of renegotiating our relationship with the EU. And that's going to keep Brexit at the top of the agenda uh, for for a long time. And in a sense, that plays to the Conservative Party, um, because what Labour would like is for us to talk about pretty much anything other than Brexit, um, as long as we're assured that the Tories are getting the blame for Brexit. Do you think they'll get the blame enough to make a Corbyn victory a possibility, a Labour victory? Well, the opinion polls suggest that Corbyn uh, at the moment has, has no chance of winning an election. But they said the same in 2017. And during the election campaign, the, we saw a big increase in, in support um, for Labour. And the Labour Party's hope is that that history will repeat itself. Now, it's in this context that the, the timing of the general election um, matters so much, because what, what Labour would like is for the election to occur at a time when the costs of no deal 
are, are, are most obvious. You know, and Labour doesn't want an election in, in which um, Johnson can take credit for having achieved um, Brexit. That, that, that they, want, they want him to have the election at a time when he can be blamed for um, the, the costs of no deal. Uh, you know, and, and that argues for sometime late November. Early December. I think the. I mean, I I, I take your point about the the pollsters also being wrong-footed in a kind of William Goldman-esque way uh, in 2017. The the difference I would suggest today is that. Well, I think you can probably best see it if I don't know if you saw Question Time on BBC the other evening, but when you see the footage of Emily Thornberry trying to explain what Labour's policy is on Brexit. I think it starts to get a bit laughable. Actually, well, I, I wouldn't mind saying that. I wouldn't mind saying that. What did she not say? Well, it's so. So Fiona Bruce basically called her and say, "So you're saying that you're going to you're going to negotiate with with Brussels, and then you're going to campaign to reverse the deal that you've just negotiated, and then go back into the EU." And it's like you see someone like like physically contorting like one of those people who can sort of stick their toes up their ears and it's just it's just painful to watch it's just really painful the labor's policy just seems to be completely absurd to me yeah i'm not i'm not sure about its absurdity but i think labor has faced this huge dilemma in the on the one hand most people in the labor party think that leaving the eu will make us economically worse off but on the other hand that a lot of people in the Labour Party n- know that they should try to respect um, the, the democratic um, decision to, to, to leave. And Labour's dilemma has been how to reconcile the, the, those two conflicting impulses. I think part of the problem with politicians is also they're trying to, they're trying to gauge where opinion is strongest and they just try to position themselves there. So I, I have a question, um, Chris. Why do you think the city, city of London appears to be so relaxed about a Corbyn McDonald government, given the, the policies that have so far been floated by the by the shadow chancellor? I, th- I think there's there's a couple of things going on. One is that a Corbyn McDonald government um, would try to offer some sort of stability about the Brexit issue, in that. Corbyn McDonnell would take the worst case scenario of no deal Brexit off the table and they would want closer economic cooperation with the EU than, than some, some Tories would want. But there's also the fact that um, the, the Tories have ceased to think coherently about economics um, and Labour have a few ideas for trying to get economic growth kick-started again. And this, this is tremendously important because I think it's the case that among a lot of younger people, capitalism is coming into question. And Labour are offering some ways of reforming capitalism to, to, to legitimise the system. And it could be that a Corbyn-McDonnell government is actually a way of shoring up capitalism for the longer term. It's just for me, the, the massive cognitive dissonance on the part of EC1 and EC2 
is that you read on the one hand in something like the Financial Times that you know the city is increasingly warming to to Corbyn McDonnell and I think it was Citigroup and I forget who the other organization was. I think it might have been Deutsche Bank, which kind of speaks for itself uh, as to its validity intellectually. Uh, but you, you had the city basically saying, yeah, we're, we're kind of being won over to it. And the, practically the very next, the, it, practically within an hour of that, McDonald's is saying, of course, I'm going to basically ban bankers' bonuses. And it, it, in my mind, the Corbyn McDonald government is effectively equivalent to the reintroduction of capital controls. And the reintroduction of capital controls would destroy the fundamental business of the City of London. Yeah, I think that there is a problem here in that um, John McDonnell does sometimes uh, let his instinct show. Um, and the, the upshot of that is that um, there is something of a dissonance between Labour's stated manifesto policies on the one hand and opinions that are either expressed by McDonnell in the heat of the moment or imputed to him by his enemies, which are far more anti-capitalist than, than Labour's actual manifesto policies. Because if you look at you know, their, their main manifesto policies, I mean, things like nationalising the utilities, well, you know, that's, the, that's the case in a lot of Europe. Um, it, we had them in, in the 50s and 60s. Capitalism can cope. With a large public sector, and, and also people, and also people hate the utilities companies anyway. So it's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, yeah, it's a way of legitimizing the system, you know, is of buying off discontent, and that that that's what capitalism has to do from time to time. You know, you, you can't run capitalism only for the health and benefit of the one percent. The other the other thing that's intriguing about this is, I mean, I was I was chatting to um, a gentleman a week or so ago. And we were talking about effectively the, the, the plight of the young. So the plight of, let's say, teenagers, 20-somethings. So I, I, I use sort of personal anecdote. When I left, so well, firstly, I, when I went to college in the late 80s, that was paid for by my local education authorities. It didn't, it didn't cost my family realistically anything. So I effectively got free sort of degree. Having finished my degree, I was, I then, it wasn't my first choice job, but I then got, managed to get a job starting in the city in 1991 as a bond salesman. And then within a few years of that, had been able to save up enough to get a, a foot on the housing ladder. Each of those three steps is now basically beyond most teenagers. Mm. Firstly, the educational system has become outrageously expensive for graduates, so they're going to leave with something like 40, 50 grand's worth of debt. Secondly, the, the job situation is, is probably far worse, I'm, I'm thinking. So they may, there may be jobs, but they're not going to be the kind of jobs that graduates are actually going to want. And thirdly, and this is the, the, the big thing point that property has become almost completely unaffordable beyond the ability of just about anybody except those with big access to generous banks of mum and dad, in, certainly in the southeast of England. And that's a huge issue because if, if, if you destroy each part of that process, then all you stoke up is anger and resentment and frustration on the part of the young. And that's not a, that's not a good look for anybody. So I was amused to see the latest trial balloon, which is the right to buy for private tenants, which, I mean, I don't, I don't have a second home. I, I have just the one property. One property is enough for me. But uh, I, would be, I, would, I would, in a sense, almost love to see what, what that does to the buy-to-let market in London. Uh, uh, hang, hang on, Tim. I've got to stop you there. Buy-to-let for private tenants. What on earth is yeah, that so, all about? So, so McDonald has floated the idea that if you're a tenant of a, of a, private, a private property, not a council home, but a private property, you could conceivably get the right to buy 
that property at a discount from its current market value. Are you joking? No, no, no. No, this surfaced last week. That, what? What? That's just completely I know, insane. I know, I, know, I, know, a- I know it is completely insane, but but also uh, in his defence. So I was talking with this gentleman, and what we agreed between us was the big challenge facing the Conservative Party is how do you make property affordable again without completely destroying your existing power base? Well, you don't. I, you don't bloody do wealthy. it like that. I tell well, you. Well, yeah, but well, I know, but it's almost like you know, be careful what you wish for. Is that that policy would, if nothing else, it would certainly cheapen the price of London property. Well, what you do is you you stop you stop cutting interest rates for a start and making it so that it becomes just an investment. I mean, property was never. I mean, property has been an investment, but it's not. It's not been an investment like this for you know. For decades, it was never considered that it was houses were bought on a on the basis of a place to live. So the main the, pro- the, the the UK, I think British British people have always regarded property as a safe haven asset, whether or not yes. it's correct to take that view. Because yes. for the last, I mean, Chris, you probably know the stats better than we do, but I mean, the property market has been a one way bet now for what fifty years, give or take. Yeah, with, with a few pretty- with a few bumps along the way. Yeah. Yes. yes, yes, but the, but if you look at if you also look at the path of interest rates throughout that period, it's been downwards. So that that's yeah. why. But yeah. but the main problem now is that you've got the you've got the accumulators' advantage, almost like a sort of mini monopoly. Well, you can't have a mini monopoly, but you, but you know what I mean. Like once you've got once you've got a portfolio of five houses, then you've got the assets to buy the sixth. So you're you're you've got these mini sort of landlords who are who've got these little property empires that means that they can swallow up the next property as it becomes available. Yet a young couple who, you know, looking to, to buy young professionals and maybe can start a family, they haven't got the money or, and, and can't take the risk of one of them losing a job, their job. So that's what you're dealing with. So in order to prevent that, you just have to change the rules or just make it more and more expensive for that landlord to buy his nth property. So, that that seems to me to be the most obvious thing. Then you get, then you get a release of those properties. So the first step is to make it more expensive to for the for the landlord who's got fifteen properties to buy the sixteenth, which which seems fair. Um, and then you start to make it a little bit more difficult to hold on to those fifteen properties. I mean, there's nothing wrong with with you know somebody wanting to build a portfolio of of properties up to a point but then it just goes beyond investment to what is fair in this in this um you know in this current situation you want young professionals in areas so you you want to have a you want doctors and nurses to be able to afford to live you know near a hospital otherwise you've got a problem and so it's it's kind of a self-feeding problem that house prices are so high so people have to rent so that creates the demand for rentable property which puts puts that into the hands of the landlord so i i i can totally see where you where you're coming from um or, or where that idea is coming from but it's it's actually it's dealing with the symptom rather than the cause you want to deal with the cause of the problem which is that it that it's so easy for an individual landlord or small property investor to to purchase his nth property to to go back to chris's earlier point what i'd say is the, the there is there is certainly the perception that you know capitalism hasn't worked for let's call it millennial generation but that's that's a, that's the sort of distortion of reality to the extent that what's actually happened is we haven't had free market capitalism for years now yes, and what 2008 showed in, in in very sharp focus was 
no, we haven't got capitalism. We've got crony capitalism. And that's what 2008 was about. And, and that crony capitalist problem has not been fixed. No, it's, it certainly hasn't. And the Tory party is showing absolutely zero interest in, in fixing it. Um, and that, that, that's, that's why Corbyn is so popular. Uh, but to go back to what you were saying about young people being priced out of homes, and you must remember that back in 1987, and in the general election then, the Tories actually won um, the vote amongst under 35s. You know, this idea that young people are somehow inherently left wing, it's not the case at all. No, no, I think you're right. Uh, young people uh, today support Corbyn simply because they are not property owners. Mm. And Thatcher wanted a property owning democracy, and in part she delivered one, you know, not out of any fancy um, ideal, but because she knew that property owners were more likely to vote Conservative. And she was right. And now that property ownership has declined among young people, guess what? You know, you know that they're, they're voting Labour. In in a stock market context, Chris, what um, well, it, whether it's stock market or any other asset class, what what in the light of all, in the midst of all of this sort of political turmoil internationally, what uh, what what areas are the ones that you would feel, let's say, more comfortable um, talking about the merits of rather than less? Um. To be honest, I, I'm not a great fan of particular stock picking, and I'm still less a fan of it um, amidst um, environmental uncertainty. Or think, let's say all, all sectors or, or geographies, yeah. then. Well, there's two strategies we know that have, on average, paid off in the long run over time. One of these is defensive stocks, and the other is, is momentum. Now, my... One issue with um, defensive stocks is, is whether investors might have wised up to them, um, because there's two, there's two aspects uh, of their success historically. One is that some defensive stocks, think of your Diageos and your Unilevers, have tended to have a lot of monopoly power, what Warren Buffett calls economic moats. Yeah. And investors might have learned that monopoly power has traditionally been underpriced, and they might now have um, eliminated um, that underpricing. But the other aspect to defensive stocks is that people have tended to overpay for, for speculative stocks, uh, and that's, that's kept um, defensive stocks relatively underpriced. And although the, they might have wised up to the monopoly power, I'm not sure they've wised up to um, the, the preference for, for growth stocks. So I'm inclined to favour um, defensives on that ground. And also, momentum investing tends to work, except when we see the market do really badly, as it did in the back half of last year. Um, so um, momentum is one of the few high beta strategies that works over time, paradoxically. And I, I would just stick with those, those, those two strategies, subject to those caveats. Do you, do you have um, interest in the precious metal sector? Because that's certainly something that we, the rationale I would make for it, and it's maybe more of a philosophical one than just say a valuation driven one in isolation, is the, the biggest single concern I have is over the stability of the financial system now. And it's not just a UK political problematic issue. It's one that's, that's now, say, 
let's say it's European if it's not global because of trade wars, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, uh, I anticipate the possibility that at some point, at some tipping point in the future, the marginal global investor is, is going to be distrustful of fiat currencies full stop. So in that environment, because of you know the money, the constant money printing, the the negative interest rates, et cetera, and the likelihood of yet more a monetary stimulus. So on that basis, if you're ultimately concerned about an inflationary outcome, even though deflation seems to be the proximate problem to be afraid of, then if you're concerned about inflation, the the, the very first thing you want to have as part of your portfolio is a is a, a type of money that can't be created. Um, uh, you know, just at the drop of a hat. It's something that's it, like money good. So things like gold and silver. Yeah, I, I'm a bit of sympathy with the case for gold. Um, not so much on, on those grounds, but simply because gold protects you from falling interest rates. You know, as, as bond yields fall, gold goes up. And so if you if you fear economic stagnation, if you fear continued negative interest rates, or even more deeply negative interest rates, then gold is a useful hedge against that. I'm not so convinced by the inflation point because the strange thing about inflation is ever since the early 90s, it's been really remarkably stable, given how unstable everything else has been. You know, we've seen one of the deepest recessions of all time. We've seen oil prices go up to $150 and come back again. And yet inflation in US, UK, Eurozone has poodled along, give or take, 2%. But, you know. but that, that, that measure is something that governments also can heavily manipulate. So I, I would suggest that what, what we're really seeing is the inflation X inflation rate, which is remarkably stable at zero. <laughs> yeah, if you um, exclude the things that are going up, inflation. Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. <laughs> But you say you favor defensives or let's say a combination perhaps of defensives and uh, and momentum. If if and this is another perhaps impossible question. If you happened to be running any kind of bond fund now, uh, what, what would which your one would you sell? About? Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm I'm glad I'm not running a bond fund. <laughs> I suppose you got you have the facility to be short as well as long, so. We're assuming it's long only. It could be, uh, it could be a sort of dedicated short strategy, which yeah. uh, at some point is going to work rather nicely, I suspect. Yeah, I mean, what worries me is um, what we might have seen in the last few months is, is a sort of positive feedback loop here, such that the, the yield curve inverts, people start fearing recession, so they pile into, into, into longer-dated bonds, so the yield curve inverts more, so, so they fear yeah. recession so they pile into longer dated bonds. Well, so that, that's what uh, that's what Soros called uh, reflexivity, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, um, and, and and it might well be what, what's happening right now. If you'd asked me at any point in the last umpteen years, is there a bond bubble? You know, I, I'd I'd have said no. Um, but perhaps in the last few weeks, um, one has emerged. Chris, you seem to be fairly positive though on the outlook for the the certainly the UK stock market, what we've just discussed right now sounds like there's there's kind of bigger challenges potentially ahead. What kind of credence would you give to there being a, another big correction or perhaps even, you know, a secular bear market approaching? You, you say there's no there's no real signs of that in your opinion. It, it, could, it could always happen. I mean, I suspect that 
what we might be in is a sort of Jap- Japan style situation of the of the nineties and not an early noughts, which is that you can have quite decent um, short term bull markets in the context of longer term stagnation. And I wouldn't be at all confident um, about the equity market on a 10 or 20 year view. But it's just that the, the shorter term indicators, by which I mean about 12 months, um, are moderately positive at the moment. You know, Now, one thing I'm a, I'm a big believer in here is the 10 month moving average rule suggested by Meb Faber. Um, he showed that one way of protecting yourself against longer-term bear markets is simply to sell when prices dip below their 10-month moving average. The point being that this gets you out of the really nasty long-term bear markets um, at the expense of preventing you from buying on dips. You know, And um, as long as prices are above that moving average, as they are now, um, then, then there's the case for being in. And you mentioned also that the the yield on the all share index is the highest that it's been in the last thirty years. I mean, that's incredible given where interest rates are. Well, it's not the highest it's been for thirty years. It's just above average. Right. You know? Okay. Okay. Um, that makes a difference. Yeah. And that 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 that, that matters because it's, it's it's been a tremendously good lead indicator in the past. And of course, historic relationships could break down. It could be that we're seeing a reversion to um, a permanently higher average yield. Um, but um, there's no evidence for that yet. Well, that, sorry to interrupt, Chris. Does that take into account dividend, the nature of dividend cover, though? Because there are a lot of big FTSE companies that can't afford to pay the dividends they're currently paying. They're having to borrow to do so. Um, no, it, it's based simply on the dividends that they are currently paying. Yeah. Right. But what I would say is that there's an interesting paradox here. As, as the Bank of England pointed out this week that a main reason for higher house prices is that interest rates have come down. And the question is, why have lower interest rates done so much over the last 20 years to boost house prices, but done so little to boost share prices? Because you would think that anything that reduces the discount rate on future cash flows would boost asset prices generally. And I suspect that what's going on in the stock market is that investors have quite rationally reacted to lower real interest rates by seeing these as a sign of lower future income growth, whereas in the housing market, they haven't. Investors have taken the good news of a lower discount rate and ignored the bad news that a lower discount rate is the counterpart to lower future growth. And that makes me suspect that the housing market is overvalued relative to the stock market. And and have you looked at property stock stocks to see whether that's reflected there as well? Well, so, well, well, some of these are on astronomical yields, but mm. uh, there's a lot of other possible reasons for that, such as the, the demise of, of, of the high street liquidity issues and so on. Yes, uh, the demise of the high street being a, a very big problem. In your opinion, is there going to be regulation of companies like Amazon to stop this happening? Or do you think that there's just going to be repurposed for something that we haven't thought of at the moment, like, say, I don't know, you know, other other internet style businesses or or perhaps even for entertainment in big shopping malls yeah i i think i think the repurposing uh, has something to be said for it but repurposing into what 
is something that you you could make yourself a fortune if you get right. Yeah. Open air brothels might be an idea. (laughs) Just just trying to to think outside the the box here. Yeah. Yeah, ideas of, off the top of your head, and of course that would be the first one that would that would come to mind. Um, yeah. On set, uh, <laughs> late after Saturday night after the pubs closed, they could be turned into vomitoriums. <laughs> I think they already are. <laughs> I think they are. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the mind of Tim Price is an amazing place. <laughs> that's all I can say. You don't. You don't want to. You don't want to go into the mind of Tim Price. Trust, trust me. <laughs> Oh dear! But that t- takes us neatly onto media picks, if you like. I, Unless there's anything else, I think to I think it would have to really. Um, yeah, Tim, what what have you got for us this week? So for for me, the the, the must see of, of my last week is a, a film called Lucky, oh. which stars the the legendary uh, Harry Dean Stanton in his last his last uh, his last film role. Um, hadn't really, hadn't really heard of it. Uh, so it just came on. I think it was on one of the Sky channels. Yeah, yeah it's it's it. it's a kind of it's a kind of arty arty film, but actually very enjoyable. Sort of slow, but but it's sort of sedate kind of thing in which nothing much really happens. But you start once I'd seen this, uh, the, the, the the nature of the plot and what what he actually does. And this 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 bits where he starts singing with some mariachi band at a at a at a, a kid's uh, birthday, Mexican kid's birthday. A lot is revealed about Harry Dean Stanton's actual life, his time in the Navy and all kinds of other things. I didn't realise just the extent to which Harry Dean Stanton had become a bit of a kind of cult figure. I'm not sure we've got anyone quite like him in, in, in British film, but it's just a lovely, a lovely film. It's called Lucky and it's, as someone's described it, the performance of a lifetime. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Chris, do you have one or do you want to think of one while I give you mine? Yeah, give, give me yours. Okay, well, my, I've got... I've got one is a recommendation similar to when I was talking about Chernobyl and how I thought that would be, a, you know, a great thing to watch. But another, 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 another laugh riot coming from Paul. No, well, yeah, here we go. It's um, I haven't seen this yet, but writings on the wall that this is going to be fantastic. Is Joker the trailers with uh, Joaquin Phoenix? Oh my God, it looks. This is part of the Batman franchise. Yeah, but it, the way they've done it, it looks amazing, absolutely amazing. So I can't wait to see that. It's not out until October, so I'm going to be watching that as soon as it's come out. But I'm 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 hyped up for it. So Joker looks amazing, and the IMDb scores are just off the charts. Ninety nine point six. I mean, that's incredible. Like Chernobyl, that was that was yeah. in the nines like straight off the bat. And so I know they tend to come down a little bit over time, um, but that the performance, the, the the trailer just really has got it. It's got it, you know? So I think I no, don't normally go via trailers, but there's just something about that that I think is fantastic. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. But the actual recommendation I have, I, I guess people are going to see it anyways, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I I went to see it without knowing very much about the... Manson family situation and in in uh in California in the late 60s 50 uh, years ago isn't it? Six, yeah. 50 years yeah so I didn't know much about that and what I I didn't want to look at it look it up before I watched the film because I wasn't sure if it was going to ruin something and and actually I wish I had because I didn't know anything about it if I'm honest with you until afterwards and then I had to look it up but I think it would have made a better film for me if I'd seen it so uh, it's it's a good film. It's, it's typical Tarantino. I think the first time you, I ever, every time I watch one of his films, the, the first screening, I'm always like, what on earth is going on here? 
And then it's sort of like the second time I watch it, I love it much more. Um, but it all seems to be building towards the end. And although it takes a little bit of time to get there, I think it's it's worth it when it does. So that that is my recommendation for this week. Just, just, just to, to leap in, just to, it's too late for me. But for anyone that hasn't yet seen this, save yourself and don't bother. Uh, I was exposed. It's the only really way I can put it to Holmes and Watson with. Will oh Ferrell. no, you didn't watch that. You didn't watch and it. John C. Riley. And I, oh. unfortunately, I did. Uh, all, all I would say is, I think the most accurate review of this is a uh, a review by Ignaty Vishnevetsky. Uh, bless you. Uh, on the Onion AV Club. And the title of this review, which I think is absolutely 100% accurate, is Will Ferrell and John C. Riley hit career lows in the abysmally unfunny Holmes and Watson. Oh, the defence rests. They, they, defense they've obviously rests. got it completely wrong because individually they're very good actors. It, exactly. They're very charismatic. So yeah. I don't know what... But I think we're back to William Goldman territory again. This is just, well abysmally unfunny well it, it's got to be the and writing that, and, that's, it's got, and that's praise and that's praise it's either the writing or the directing you know it's got to be one of the perhaps, two perhaps, perhaps both I, I, yeah I would never blame the actors because they're good actors so it's they've obviously just been directed wrong or, or well, something I think I think um, Hitchcock said the three requirements for a great film are a good script a good script and a good script and this clearly didn't have that yeah absolutely Absolutely. So, so Chris, would, what would you be recommending? I mean, could, we've, we've mentioned films and stuff, but it could be any, any business book or anything at all that you think's worth sharing. I'm, I'm going to recommend an author, one of his books I'm enjoying at the moment. And that's a chap called Lionel Davidson. Now, he was a thriller writer who was active in the 60s through to the 90s. He didn't write very many books, but the ones he did write are absolute corkers. Oh, brilliant. Uh, there's um, one of his books, was one called Kalimsky Heights, um, which is about a chap who um, undertakes a spy mission in, in Siberia and then has trouble getting out. The one I'm enjoying at the moment is The Rose of Tibet, uh, about a, an Englishman who goes over to Tibet to try and rescue his half-brother and, and gets involved in all, all sorts of religious mysteries. Um, but I, I find that um, literary fiction, um, for me, is terribly overrated, and a decent thriller is terribly underrated. Mm. Uh, I recommend everyone to check out Lionel Davidson. Brilliant. Brilliant. Never heard, heard, it here, heard it You heard it here first. Fantastic recommendation, Chris. Thank you very much indeed. Um, just... Just to say, I've, you you write obviously you write for the Investors Chronicle, and you also write a blog, don't you? Stumbling and mumbling. Is yes. it dot com? Yeah. Well, what's that? What's that about? Well, this is my um, alter ego. Ah. Uh, in the Investors Chronicle, uh, I try to stick to uh, economics as would interest a UK equity investor. My mm-hmm. uh, more political writings uh, are on stumbling and mumbling. Aha, uh-huh, I see. So I, I would, I would just, I would just add for the benefit of anyone who hasn't, who hasn't experienced stumbling and mumbling. I would say, and, and you know, this is not meant to be sort of blowing smoke. I would say stumbling and mumbling is perhaps the most technically impressive blog I've ever, ever seen. Oh, really? Wow, amazing! Well, and, and I don't know how you make the time to do it, Chris. To be absolutely I, honest, I, I, I don't know either. 
<laughs> well, we'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes as well as your uh, link at the Investors Chronicle. Now, you're on, what, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? They probably can't via stumbling and mumbling, but they could via, say, Twitter or, or email. What would you prefer? Yeah, by Twitter or, or email, okay. uh, chris.dillo at ft.com. And um, you can you can follow me on, on Twitter. Just just Google Chris Dillo Twitter. Well, we'll put links, as I say, in the show notes to make it easy for people. But I can see a CJF Dillo uh, at at Twitter. So that that's your that's your handle. Yep. Fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed your thoughts. Definitely lots to think about there. And Tim, it's great to great to chat again, isn't it? It's been a little always while. a pleasure, never a chore. Indeed, that's what I was going to say. You always, uh, you always get the best <laughs> lines, don't you? <laughs> Just a big thank you to all our listeners and all the fantastic reviews that have been left for us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you so much, and the big Twitter family. I can only say that that Tim seems to have nurtured. Um, it's fantastic reading. You've got to, got to get involved with it. It's always fun. And uh, of course, Tim can't say it himself, but he's a very entertaining Twitter writer. So definitely worth following him at Tim F. Price. So have a fantastic couple of weeks. And uh, thanks again to our guests. And we will catch you next time. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Bye. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.